Welcome to the 2019 Good News Church Global Outreach Conference. The following is session two, recorded on Friday, March 29th, 2019, with Leonardo DiCherico, entitled, Why the Reformation is Not Over. Let's now join the session. Very grateful to you for your patience, and uh, I'm going to talk about a question that uh, uh, has been asked uh, increasingly so over the last uh, few years because of the um, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation a few years ago, 2017, marking the fifth centenary of the uh, conventional uh, beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Germany on the 31st of October 1517, Martin Luther uh, nailing the 95 Theses um, in Wittenberg, Germany, and conventionally uh, beginning that movement that uh, was so influential, not only in Germany, but throughout Europe and uh, throughout the world, that has been influential uh, since. And uh, uh, the question after five centuries is a legitimate question, and uh, has been asked by uh, many, many people around the world. Uh, the Re Protestant Reformation is an historical fact. It is something that belongs to history. It is something that happened five centuries ago, but today we are in 2019, five centuries after. And the question is, is it still going on? Is it still legitimate? Is the Reformation over? Is it something that needs to be overcome? Is it something that has been accomplished? Is it something that still needs to be uh, upheld? And uh, uh, I will help, I will ask you to uh, put, yeah, so the, the question is, is the Reformation over? And uh, you can see uh, different websites that can help us and you to uh, respond or to answer to this question. The first, uh, can we move on please? Yeah. Um, the issue has to do with the fact that after centuries of strained relationships within, between Catholics and Evangelical Protestants, around the world, uh, many people are realizing that uh, uh, what used to be a tense, controversial, conflictual relationship uh, needs to um, go through a season of appeasement, of reconciliation. And uh, uh, they're basing their, their assessment on the, on the fact that the disagreements that led to the controversy then, five centuries ago, are in the main resolved. They are no longer there. Plus, the situation, historical situation, global situation is so different that uh, what used to be a controversy then is no longer real. Moreover, the global situation urges us to look in more uh, 
um, in different ways what used to be the controversy, locating the controversy in uh, theological issues then into seeing our own main problems lying somewhere else than in the relationship between the Reformation and the Catholic Church. If we can move. Some people are asking the question whether or not the major challenges for Christians worldwide are not the Catholic Church and the relationship with Rome, but rather, globally speaking, the main challenges are today perceived as being, on the one hand, Islam, on the other, secularism. If we have to if we have to understand what are the main issues that we have to face, if we have to prioritize the main issues that we have to face, uh, are they not the big issue of Islam? How to deal with this missionary force, global missionary religion wanting to conquer the world? And on the other, a more internal challenge coming from secularization, that cultural tendency, social tendency of relegating God to the margins and making him irrelevant. Are these not the two main dangers that, globally speaking, worldwide speaking, are the main issues we have to deal with? And in light of these big issues and challenges, the old Reformation versus Catholic Church controversy appears to become more of an intramural, provincial, tiny issue. That's a big argument, that's a big uh, factor that is very much influencing the public opinion, both inside churches and as well as outside. But secondly, the uh, motivation that leads people to ask the question whether or not the Reformation is over has to do with the growing perception that uh, the theological issues that uh, uh, triggered the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century are basically resolved. What used to be considered as divisive and dividing issues are nowadays considered as being matters of legitimate difference between people looking at the same thing from different angles. So instead of thinking that the issues are uh, that used to be considered as indicating to very different, distinct, and diverse and incompatible accounts of the gospel, are now seen as being perspectives on the same gospel coming from different viewpoints. So I'm, I'm, I'm standing here and I'm looking at this microphone from my perspective. What I see is a gray, um, a gray microphone and uh, I don't see the, the black side of the microphone because I see it from my point of view. For me, this is gray. But you are seeing the same microphone from your perspective. Let me check. And your perspective shows you that this is a it has a has a, a black part. 
Perhaps you don't see the gray part as clear as I see it, and I don't see the black part that you see in the same way as that you see it. But the reality is that we're seeing the same microphone, and ultimately I'm seeing it from this angle, you're seeing it from that angle, but what we're seeing is the same thing. And this is the way in which more and more people are, when they approach the theological issues of the Protestant Reformation back in the 16th century, is the way in which they are now seeing those things as no longer being indicating very different things in themselves, but actually being different perspectives on the same basic object. So, the question is legitimate. Is the Reformation over? Thank you. In order to approach uh, the question and to try to answer it, we have to <clears throat> uh, understand what motivated the Reformation, what were the main issues then that triggered the Reformation in the 16th century, and on the basis of that answer, we will be able then to respond to the question whether or not they are still relevant. We have to understand the issues then, and then to make, ask the question whether they are relevant today. So what were the issues discussed in the 16th century that marked the Protestant Reformation? Now the Protestant Reformation was a very complex, is a very complex historical phenomenon that can be studied and assessed from various angles and viewpoints. It was a political movement, it was a social movement, it was an economic movement, it was a cultural movement, it was a multinational movement. So a very complex uh, historical movement that it is difficult to squeeze is just one single uh, perspective or dimension. But ultimately, even though we realize that the Protestant Reformation was a, a complex historical phenomenon, ultimately from the theological point of view, from the biblical, spiritual, doctrinal point of view, there were two main issues that triggered and characterized the Protestant Reformation. Around these two main issues, the Protestant reformers did what they did and uh, challenged the system that, that, um, <clears throat> that was before them. It was around these two issues that the Reformation took off then, and it is perhaps legitimate to ask whether or not these two issues that triggered the Reformation then are still with us today. Our answer to this question will then lead us to answer the largest question, whether or not the Reformation is over. There are two main questions that led to the Protestant Reformation. The first one had to do with the recovery of the full, ultimate authority of the Bible over the Church. That was the first primary issue that was discussed in the 16th century and then led to the breach, the break, the reformation of the medieval early modern church. Is the Bible to be considered 
a child, a daughter of the church, and so being uh, obedient to the teaching of the church, being under the church, being used by the church in order to affirm what the church believes, ultimately deciding for herself what is true and what is false. That was the account of the early modern medieval church, the Bible standing under the authority of the Pope and the church. Or, as the reformers would strongly argue, the Bible needed to be recovered in its fullest, ultimate authority above the church. The Bible having to be recognized as the authority of God being exercised by the Holy Spirit over the church. And uh, that was one of the two main issues, the so-called formal principle of the Reformation, the issue of authority. Where does authority, ultimate authority lie? Is it in the Pope? Is it in the Church? Is it in the Word of God written? Is it in the Word of God inspired by God and uh, having full and ultimate authority over the Church? The second main issue that triggered the Reformation in the 16th century was had to do with salvation. How sinners like us receive the salvation of God. God has achieved and accomplished in sending the Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did on the cross. How do we approach, how do we appropriate, how do we receive that gift of salvation? According to the Reformers, basing that view on uh, biblical exegesis and biblical understanding of the Gospel, that salvation is entirely a gift of God that from beginning to end is given by God the Father through His Son Jesus by the power of the Spirit and uh, having to be received with the empty hand of faith, receiving the promises of the Gospel and therefore appropriating them and becoming recipients of that gift so that the ground of salvation is Christ and His work, and the hope for salvation entirely lies in the definitive and finalized work of Christ. On the contrary, the Roman Church then <clears throat> believed that uh, salvation comes to us uh, initiating a process, a journey, that begins with the sacrament of baptism, continues through the other installments of other sacraments, needing the, our involvement in doing good works in order to be worthy of these uh, uh, grace, and therefore leading us the process towards its final completion that perhaps will happen in the end when uh, Judgment Day will occur. But nobody can be sure about what is going to be the, uh, the outcome because the agencies who are playing in the process are God's grace on the one hand, the sacraments of the church on the other, and our good works on another uh, as well. So that 
if we can rely on God's grace, but God's grace is not enough, and we have to rely on ourselves, and we cannot rely truly on ourselves, so the end result is open-ended. And basically, God's grace is not sufficient to guarantee your own salvation. No, no, yeah, you, you have gone. <laughs> okay. And we're still, we're still in the previous one, sorry. Yeah. So I appreciate the fact that salvation is received by faith alone, uh, being a gift uh, by God and uh, out of His grace, and out of His grace alone. So these are the two issues the formal principle, the material principle of the Reformation. The authority of the Bible, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. These were the two main significant uh, dividing issues in the 16th century. Now we move on. So, um, what has happened since, in terms of these two main points? Are the positions being reconciled, coming closer? change. Now, as far as the authority of the Bible is concerned, uh, the Church of Rome was not grounded and based on the Bible alone then, and continues not to be based on Scripture alone today. Back then, in the 16th century, the argument, the Catholic argument, was that the Bible was not in itself sufficient to lead us to know the truth of God. The Bible needed to be supplemented by the traditions of the Church and ultimately by the teaching office of the Church. And that position has been maintained throughout the centuries that followed the 16th century, to the point that not only in theory, but also in practice, after the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church has committed itself to three new dogmas that were not part of the dogmatic outlook of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. The 1854 dogma of Mary's Immaculate Conception. The idea that Mary was preserved from original sin, elevating this belief to a dogmatic status, that is, to a defining status of the Christian faith. According to Catholic teaching, in order to be a faithful Catholic, you must believe that Mary was preserved from original sin, from her conception. Now, that, how, where does in the Bible such a teaching is taught? Nowhere. Nowhere. The Bible actually tells the very opposite, that we are all sinners, and there is no exception apart the sinless one, who happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. All the rest of us are sinners inheriting our sinful nature from our forefather, Adam. There is no exception, there is no provision for something else 
apart from recognizing all of us being sinners. So if this teaching is not in the Bible and yet is elevated to the highest dogmatic status, where does this teaching come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the tradition of the church and ultimately from the authority of the teaching office of the Pope. As a matter of fact, the 1854 dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is promulgated with the, uh, with the language, with the formula, using the language of we declare, we pronounce, we teach that Mary was preserved from original sin, but there is no scriptural evidence. So, in the modern Catholic Church, the Bible is not considered as the ultimate authority, and the evidence of it is in the fact that the modern Catholic Church has committed itself to a dogma that has no biblical evidence. So you can have a dogma, defining doctrine, that has no biblical support, and yet being considered as a defining mark of the Christian faith. So is the Reformation over? In, no, it is not over because the Church has really implemented a view or a journey that is not committed to Scripture. The second dog, modern dogma, the 1870 dogma of the, uh, the infallibility of the Pope. 1870 dogma of the infallibility of the Pope that states that whenever the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair, literally from the chair, when he speaks from the chair of Peter, he speaks infallibly. What he says is infallible, cannot, is not fallible, that is, cannot be mistaken. And so, it doesn't mean according to Catholic teaching, that whatever the Pope says is infallible. No, they distinguish between the ordinary teaching of the Pope, what he says in his homilies, in his speeches, in his addresses, in his writings. This is the ordinary teaching of the Pope that is not infallible, is highly authoritative, but not infallible. It is only when he speaks ex cathedra, when, it's, when he introduces his teaching with the formula um, related to the words we pronounce, we proclaim, we teach, that that teaching is infallible. And as a matter of fact, the only three clear uh, expressions of that teaching, infallible teaching that the Catholic Church recognizes, are the three dogmas that have been promulgated in the modern period. The 1854 dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which is thought of as being an infallible statement, something that cannot be changed, something that cannot be uh, renounced. The 1870 dogma of the infallibility of the Pope is another infallible statement that cannot be changed and thirdly, the 1950 dogma of the bodily assumption 
of Mary. The idea that as soon as she died, she was taken body and soul to the heavenly glory. And this is again another document defining the Christian faith of the Catholic Church. So Mary was given a dogmatic Mariology, the Marian doctrine was given dogmatic status both as far as her beginnings, her conception, and as far as her final day. As soon as she died, she was taken body and soul to the heavens. Now, where does scripture teach the infallibility of the Pope? There is nowhere, no, no place in scripture that uh, teaches that well, as a matter of fact, there is no teaching on the Pope himself, but uh, more, um, on top of that, there is no teaching on the infallibility of the Pope. We're all fallible. What we say in go is uh, marked by and marred by sin. The only infallible words are the words of God, uh, written, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and written in the biblical books. But as far as human words are concerned, there is no, no one of them is marked by infallibility. And so the dogma that elevates the, the teaching of the Pope to a dogmatic infallible state, uh, status is based on something else than the Bible. And where does the Bible teach that Mary was assumed body and soul to the heavenly glory soon after dying? Nowhere in scripture we find this teaching. And yet, this is a defining teaching of the Catholic faith, uh, having received dogmatic status. So, if the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was an attempt to recover the full authority of the Bible over the Church, and what has happened since has shown that the Catholic Church, instead of receiving that call, has instead reacted against it, even proving with three clear evidences that the Church is not grounding its teaching on the Bible, but actually is grounding its teaching on its own teaching, self-referentially developing its own opinions and making them Dogmas. That is a proof that the Reformation is not over, because the issue of the authority of the Bible was an issue then and continues to be an issue now. Second point. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That was another important uh, marking mark of the Protestant Reformation. What has happened after the Protestant Reformation? Uh, the Council of Trent was the official response to the Protestant Reformation between 1545 and 1562. In the Italian city of Trent, uh, the Pope finally convened a council of uh, calling all bishops, Catholic bishops, to discuss uh, some of the issues of the Reformation and to launch a the Counter-Reformation. 
And uh, at the Council of Trent, the a teaching whereby God's salvation is by grace alone, received by faith alone, was rejected and replaced with the teaching whereby God's grace is the beginning of a process that needs to be implemented and supplemented with our own works through the sacraments of the church. And that is a very different, if not radically different view than the reformers. And uh, it went as far as, the Council of Trent went as far as uh, cursing all those who would up, uphold the teachings of the Reformation. Those who believe that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, are considered as cursed, excommunicated, anathema. Now, since then, the language has changed. And the Catholic Church has began to use a more polite language, a less abrasive language. But still, the reality is the substance of the doctrine, the Catholic doctrine is that uh, we are, as far as salvation is concerned, we are saved not by grace alone, through faith alone, but we are saved by a combination of factors. I often uh, tell the story of how I learned to bike my bicycle. I think it's a story that all of you uh, can be familiar with. At least in my case, it worked in this way. My father, when he decided that I needed a bicycle, he said, this is a bicycle for you, but you are too small, and now I'll put two wheels, two small wheels, that will help you to keep your balance. Okay, so you get acquainted with biking with this small bike with small wheels helping you to stay on track. But at one point, he told me, now it's the time to take the wheels off. Because you need to learn to bike on your own. Okay? And so he did. And he said, now I'm going to push you. I'm going to give you the initial push, but then as I will leave you, make sure that you begin biking. Because if you don't bike, move your legs in an appropriate way, you will end up in falling and you will hurt. Okay, everything is clear. Okay, okay, three, two, one, and he push me, run, and after a few yards, <laughs> he would say, okay, go! And I then needed to try, 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 and then the first time, I fell. And then he tried again and again, until I was finally able to bike on my own. You see the point? God's grace is that initial push. God as a father, in the Catholic understanding, God as a father gives you the initial push. And then, as he gives you the push, you need to do good works in order to keep it going 
because that push will not take you where you're supposed to go. It, it is only the beginning. But then you need to do your own good works. You need to go through the sacraments in order for that grace to become, to take you where you need to go. But you're not going to where you need to go only on the basis of that initial push. Whereas the Bible, rediscovered by the reformers, teaches us that God's grace is not only the initial push. God's grace is the guarantee that God will continue to lead us. And he will be the one who will wait for us at the point where we are supposed to go. And on the basis of his reliability, we will be, we are assured that we will be able to get there. On that basis, of course, we need to, the, 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 the grace of God makes us respond in gratefulness, in doing good works, in committing ourselves to an obedient lifestyle and so on. Good works are important, but not as ingredients of this combination of forces and agencies resulting in an hopeful outcome but as a response to an already received gift resulting in gratefulness, service, and obedience. So even as far as the second main point of the Reformation is concerned, the situation has not become better after five centuries. We're still dealing with the same issue that sparked the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and are still with us in our century. Now, what we can say is that the controversies then were then led to the use of force and violence and led to years of wars. That is something that we don't need to recover. That is something that we should stay away from. Our controversy, our differences need to find a way to engage a peaceful, friendly and respectful dialogue, not leading into unnecessary wars, which shed lots of blood in Europe. That was a very negative consequence of that division. And this is something that we have to distinguish because people say, oh, theology always leads people to war. Well, that this is an historical fact in the 16th century and 17th century Europe, but that doesn't need to be so. We can engage in meaningful theological dialogue and even controversy but maintaining the fact that we are not supposed to end up in fighting an unnecessary war. We can dialogue, we can be friends, we can uh, have conversations without, always within limits of respect, friendliness, and uh, uh, good relationship, maintaining, as far as we can, good relationship. So, we move 
on. The fact that the Reformation is not over does lead to having an antagonistic approach, an inability to cooperate or to work together or to find ways of collaborating in some sense. No. As a matter of fact, there are many ways in which Catholics and Evangelicals can work together on the basis of common good, issues in society, issues as far as the protection of life, issues related to the protection of the family, of principles, of religious freedom, and so on and so forth. Not exclusively relating this to evangelicals and Catholics, but to all those who agree to work on these points, be they coming from Catholic backgrounds, Protestant backgrounds, secular backgrounds, even to a certain extent from Muslim backgrounds or from other religious backgrounds. If we agree on certain points in social ethics, cultural issues, that we can find a common agreement on that single issue, not indicating the fact that issues are resolved or overcome, but only indicating the fact that whatever our backgrounds are, we are convinced that this single issue or single issues are important for us, for the good of society, for the good of our nations. If that is the case, we can, after five centuries, find ways of working together. The an important apologist of, of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, coined the term co-belligerence, fighting together with people of other persuasions, people of other backgrounds, people of other religious viewpoints, people of other faiths, fighting together on single issues that happen to be of common concern for all of us. And this is perfectly legitimate. It doesn't need to have a strong Christian base. It only needs to have the focus on the single issue we are working for. And all those who are agreed on that single issue, be it the protection of the unborn life, the protection of the family, the protection of religious freedom and so on, they can be part of a common action. But this is very different from talking about Christian unity. Christian unity is a spiritual reality needing a theological consensus on the basics of the gospel. Co-belligerence doesn't need convergence on basic gospel truths. Unity is a spiritual gift given by God to all those who believe in Him, uniting them around the family of God and making them one. These are very, two very distinct and different uh, things. We can do co-belligerence co with Catholics. We cannot do mission with the Catholic Church. Co-belligerence is possible on the basis of common concerns in common issues related to single uh, factors or issues in society. Christian unity is based on uh, 
the agreement on the gospel leading to cooperation in God's mission. So the fact that the Reformation is not over doesn't lead us to be antagonists, to have an antagonistic, emotionally driven, antagonistic approach to the Church of Rome. Rather, in many ways, it can lead us to find possible ways to work with Catholics on issues like the protection of life, social ethics, and religious freedom, without compromising the fact that we understand the Gospel, our accounts of the Gospel are so different, not allowing us to think that the issues that led to the Protestant Reformation then are now resolved. Moving on. Maintaining gospel, clear gospel standards. That is crucial in, even as we are part of a missions conference, when we talk about mission, we can do mission together if there is a common, sufficiently common, cohesive, biblical base, biblically based understanding, reception of the gospel of Jesus. If that is not the case, as it is the case with the Roman Catholic Church, we cannot talk about having a common mission. This has been perhaps a uh, weakness, if not a mistake, of the Evangelicals and Catholics Together initiative that uh, was initiated in the early 90s and still goes on here in the, state, in the States. Uh, looking at society, these people understood that there were common issues that Evangelicals and Catholics were concerned for. And that is legitimate. But then they, they crossed the fence and they ended up in saying, because there are issues we are concerned, we can be united in mission. So they jumped over the fence and from co-belligerence they then argued about that co-belligerence in terms of a recovered Christian unity. That's the basic confusion of that initiative. We can do, we can work together in society on common single issues without necessarily claiming that we have a unified mission. Mission is only for those who agree on the essential core elements of the gospel. If there is not such core agreement, there is no common mission, according to the Bible. Unity always needs to be gospel-centered. We can have co-belligerent actions, we can have convergences on some social, cultural, uh, ethical issues, but Christian unity needs to be gospel-defined and Bible-based. Otherwise, we're, we're confusing, we're blurring the terms, and we, are, we end up in confusing mistakes. Moving on. So, finally, the issues that led to the Protestant Reformation are still with us. It doesn't mean that the the threats around us are not real. It doesn't mean that Islam is not a real concern. It doesn't mean that secularization 
is also a great danger. But those two concerns do not have to overshadow the reality of the fact that there is no consensus on these two basic fundamental gospel issues of the authority of the Bible and salvation by grace alone through faith alone. This is still an issue that needs to be maintained and proclaimed and promoted in our churches and in our activities. Evangelicals nowadays affirm together with the reformers that foundational convictions of the gospel are based on the Bible and the Bible alone and lead us to recognize that the gospel is about the salvation of God perfectly achieved by and accomplished by the person and the work of Christ and enacted by the Spirit received by grace alone through faith alone and this is why this is the ultimate reason why the Reformation is an ongoing task even in our third millennium after five centuries since the Protestant Reformation. Okay, lots of uh, issues to hopefully discuss and uh, talk about. If you have questions or uh, comments, I'll be happy to listen to you. Thank you very much. Yes, Tom. Quick question on the infallibility of the Pope. Yeah. Don't we Catholics consider Peter the first Pope? Who? Catholics consider Peter the first Pope? Yes. Do they believe Peter was infallible? Yes, they do. Really? Yeah. Only after he became a Catholic, I guess? Uh, only when he spoke at ex cathedral. Now, what it means for Peter speaking ex cathedral, it is difficult to, to say because probably didn't have a chair. <laughs> well, the point I was making yeah. is simply, he made a lot of mistakes oh, yes. before the resurrection, and even after the resurrection, yeah. Peter, uh, Paul confronted him. Oh, yeah, sure. And he said, I confront you to his face because you're clearly in the wrong. So that sounds like he's not infallible. Yes. I mean, there is no, you're right, you're right. It, it, the whole, you know, doctrine of the papacy has very significant cracks from the very beginning, from the very uh, connection of the role of the Pope to the person of Peter. And then from the historical record of Popes, I mean, there is, uh, there is no evidence of any kind of even slightly moral superiority in the lives of Popes. Uh, and even as far as the patterns moral patterns of uh, top Catholic leaders across the centuries. They have a very evil record. And this was one of the facts that contributed to uh, the crisis of Martin Luther. He came to Rome in 1511, came to visit the, the Holy City, the Eternal City, in order to uh, find encouragement in his own fight against sin. And when he came there, he was astonished to see that the reality of the clergy, of the of the papacy, of the of the church at the very top was as corrupted as anywhere else. 
and uh, that led him to raise questions about the whole uh, legitimacy of that system, going back to the real source of authority that he rediscovered in the in the Bible, rather than this humanly shaped institution. And so that, that's that's a good uh, question, but the answer is that there is no even there is no evidence in the in the life of Peter, uh, nor in the lives of subsequent popes, nor in the lives of present-day popes. I mean, they are as human as we are, and uh, uh, not at all infallible in any sense. Yes? Where does the immaculate conception come from? Where does the immaculate conception come from? Now, I don't want to escape the question, but tomorrow morning I'll be giving a talk on Mary. <laughs> if you can wait, uh, I'll give you just a, just a few seconds. Uh, it has a long history. It didn't pop up in the 19th century out of the blue. It, it had a long history and finally got recognized as a dogma. But basically, I will explain it better tomorrow. Basically, it comes from the wrong assumption that has been working in Catholic thinking for centuries that whatever you can say about the Son, you must say it also as far as the Mother is concerned. So if the Son is sinless, the Mother is not sinless because otherwise she would have been considered as God, but she is preserved from original sin. The son was unique, the mother must be unique. The same is true as far as the assumption, bodily assumption is made. What you, what you say of the son must be, must be also true of the mother. The son was resurrected, the mother was not resurrected, but uniquely assumed, bodily assumed in order to share the glory that the Son had received, because she is the Mother. I will explain the link between the Son and the Mother tomorrow, and that, that's the mechanism that made these two dogmas, uh, gives the rationale to these two dogmas, away from Scripture, just out of a this perverse logic. What can be said of the Son? Can also be said of the mother. Actually, must be said of the mother. So, if you ascribe something to the son, you must also recognize it. We will. I'll explain it better. Yes. Yeah. question is, uh, in encountering uh, Catholic friends, we often find that they do not really know what they should believe <laughs> in terms of their own church, and is it the best way to 
engage with them? Uh, and my answer would be, uh, we have to, if we allow the Bible to speak, and we should be also ready for the Bible to raise the question. And if they don't know, we should at least be um, aware of what Catholic teaching is all about, or leading people to Catholic teaching. So if they're not aware, we need to say, okay, do you do do you understand what the Bible is saying here? Yes. Is this something that you uh, understand well? Yes. But I, am I am I right or am I wrong in thinking that the Church of Rome teaches something different? So instead of saying Church of Rome is wrong, have you understood this? Is there's something that needs to be said about what the church teaches about this that apparently doesn't square with what we have just read or understood. So that questions arise from, from within. And uh, it is not always easy for a Catholic to question the church, because that is where the authority lies. But if we, be, if we allow the Word of God, prompted by the Holy Spirit, to begin to raise the issues and to, and to ask them questions about what does the Church teach, teach and why does it teach this way, if it is not in alignment with what the Bible teaches. That's the, the beginning of a process. Normally speaking, uh, people who, are, who have been educated in majority Catholic cultures, they need time to process. Because they need a totally different uh, process, uh, thought process to be developed. Because normally they're used to say, this is true because the, the Church teaches this to me. I don't have to care about, is this scriptural, is this biblical, because the mother Church teaches it to me, and she's my mother, and the mother cares for me. I don't have to question the mother. So it is difficult when we, when we approach Catholic friend questioning, undermining the church abruptly. It is as if we're saying, you have to undermine your mother. And that is really not easy. So you have to help them to raise the questions for themselves. They don't agree with this is something that the Bible really doesn't teach us. How do you handle that? And it may take time, it may take patience, but uh, it is a way that God has been using to, uh, to enlighten the minds and hearts of even devout people who thought that they were uh, living out the Christian life that was a very different Type of religious type. Yes, Mary. I don't know what is this definition of a saint. What's the definition of a saint in, in, in Catholic times? Um, the definition of a saint is not related to the given status 
of being a believer in Christ, clothed in Christ. Like the definition of a saint is in the New Testament. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's not writing to very good people, actually. The, the, the situation in Corinth is uh, dreadful. And yet he calls them saints. Because a saint, a sainthood or being a saint is related to having been clothed in Christ. For a Catholic Church to be a saint is to be morally uh, showing the virtues of the Christian life. So it's not so much a matter of status, but as a matter of behavior. The degree of faithfulness, the degree of heroic virtues uh, displayed in your life that makes you a saint. So the saints are those heroic figures who have lived out uh, the Christian virtues in outstanding ways. So it is a moral criterion rather than based on being justified and clothed in Christ. So the saints are people who have done miracles, who have suffered, who have uh, gone through a martyrdom and have displayed heroic uh, virtue, Christian virtues as opposed to ordinary Christians who have not <clears throat> done so. And because they have, they are, they're, they're, they, they did extra, they, they gained extra merit for what they did. That the extra merit is then treasured by the church and used to, for the benefit of those who are not saints in that sense, and so they lack holiness, virtue, discipline. What they did in surplus benefits those of us who are not really performing the same uh, sainthood. And then it's the kind of exchange that, that, that takes place in the Catholic Church through the indulgences. What they did plus is then rechanneled to the rest of us in, to match our inadequacy. So it's a very different uh, concept. So if you, if you ask an ordinary Catholic, are you a saint? He or she would immediately respond, Oh no, I'm not a saint, I'm not, I'm not a martyr. And if you say, Oh, I am a saint, it looks like a very arrogant statement because you're actually saying, I am a hero. But no, that's another instance of the issue that we looked at this morning. Same word, different world. We're talking about being a saint, but Understanding being a saint in a very different way. Yeah? So, uh, trying to rephrase. So, the righteousness of the saint is not imputed. No. It's earned. And with that earning comes extra grace to be shared. Yes. And, and the church manages, administers that extra through the indulgence system. So that those who go through the indulgent system, they 
end up in receiving the treasury of the treasure of the church, which is the the uh, something that the church keeps in, 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 in keeping the extra merits of the saints, the extra merits of Mary, and uh, buying them, uh, storing them, and then channeling them through the sacraments and indulgences for those who need them. That's why they the praise of the saints. Yeah, yeah. They go praise of the saints because they have merited extra uh, gains or merits, and that extra makes them capable of then making the church opening up the treasure in order for us needing some more to be to receive that more. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it possible for the Catholic Church to Yes. I mean let me let me let me put it this way. Uh, up to the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council happened between 1962 and 1965. So 50, 50 years ago, 55 years ago. That was a very watershed event, not only in the 20th century, but in the modern uh, period of the Catholic Church. Prior to the, to the uh, Second Vatican Council, the main understanding of uh, the Catholic Church with regards to those who would not be part of the Catholic Church, would be outside of the Catholic Church, was that they were out of the sphere of God's grace. They were either excommunicated if they had been Catholics, um, being cut off from fellowship, or even pagans, pagans those who would belong to other religions, but outside of the sphere of grace. Because the spheres of grace were considered as being equivalent to the borders of the Catholic Church. Okay? So, and the, the old uh, dictum uh, by Cyprian, outside of the Church there is no salvation. Extra ecclesiam nulla salus in Latin was understood as meaning that those who were not part of the sacramental system were excluded from grace. Now, Vatican II, without renouncing to this understanding, extended it and made it more elastic, more fluid in order to reinterpret it in a very different way. And the way in which it was reinterpreted is the following. The issue is no longer whether or not one is in or out. But the issue is rather how close we are to the fountain of grace. And uh, the issue is no longer a line marking the difference between those who are in and those who are out. But now the picture has to do with a series of concentric circles. 
all revolving around the same center. The center being the fullness of God's grace through the sacraments of the church. Those who are in, they receive the full the fullness of God's grace. But those who are not in, they still revolve around the same center and they still, they still benefit from the rays of God's grace going even beyond the sacraments. So Protestants would belong to the first circle outside of the inner circle. They are no longer considered as heretics, they are separated brethren, not part of the fullness of God's grace, but still revolving around the same grace. If they want to receive the fullest measure of God's grace, they have to convert to Catholicism, because it's through the sacramental system that you receive that fullness. If they don't, they're still revolving around the same, it probably means that they will spend more time in purgatory. But then, the other circle has to do with monotheistic religious people, the Jews and Muslims. They do not recognize Christ as the Messiah or the Son of God, but they still believe in one God. And they still have a religious sense of right. They still have a morality based on a religious sense. So, they don't receive the grace of God through the sacraments, but because they have that innate religious uh, right, right and worthy, they still benefit from the rays of grace. But what about then the other religious people? Hindus, Buddhists, and you name them. Well, they, they, they are even further than the Jewish and the Muslims, because they don't they believe in many gods. They have a polytheistic religion, but still have a very strong religious sense. They, they, they have a morality, they show respect, or should show respect for something. And so they are not out, but they are further from the circle. And what about those who don't believe, the agnostics? Yes, they are agnostics, but they're still human, and they still care for the children. They still, ordinarily, you know, have some passions, positive passions. They still are good citizens, and so God's grace touches or gets to them through this outer circle. What about? those who the atheists, those who don't really believe in. Well, yes, but they still have that innate uh, humanity that's still part of who they are. Now, this is the main post-Vatican II understanding of the relationship between the Catholic Church and those who do not belong to the Catholic it used to be either or, white or black, either in or out. Now it is 
Let's put it this way. There are 50 shades of gray. <laughs> How come Vatican II wasn't an ex-cathedra event? Was Vatican II an ex-cathedra event? No, it was a council, though. And uh, although, for the first time, for the first time in history, a Catholic council did not issue anathemas, curses, excommunication. Normally, councils are convened when there is a problem and the church needs to deal with it. And one way of dealing with it is by saying, this is what's true, those who don't agree with this are out, excommunicated. That has been the pattern throughout church history. For the first time in history, Vatican II has no negative words to say to anybody. All positive ones. And uh, secondly, Vatican II was not meant to be a dogmatic council, although two of the constitutions are dogmatic constitutions, but still is in the hierarchy of uh, teaching, of the teaching of the church. The pronouncements of the council are second to ex cathedra pronouncements of the Pope. So they are very high in, in, the, in, the, in the hierarchy. And, uh, and thirdly, in the Catholic understanding of the development of doctrine, the last pronouncement interprets the previous one. So now, yeah, we say, yeah, but Trent says that those who don't uh, agree with Trent are anathemas. Yeah, Trent says that. But we interpret Trent through the last pronouncement of the church. And the last pronouncement didn't issue any anathemas. And actually called Protestants separated brethren. Now, now, how can you then square these two teachings of the same authority? Well, that's a matter for the Catholics to, to, to decide. So it is certainly a contradiction. First, you excommunicate us, then you call us brethren. We, have, we, we haven't changed. What, how have you changed? And why now you're saying this without renouncing to that? So it's their problem. But it is the last pronouncement that is the, gives the interpretation of what. So even you go, you go to a Catholic and you say, yes, but the Pope. Popes made many mistakes, made you know several uh, wrong pronouncements. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. But it is the last that defines the previous. So that now everything that the church teaches needs to be squared with Vatican II. That's the interpretative key. My father-in-law said that Vatican II ruined the faith. And found Jesus because of that. Yeah. That's, that's, very, that's good for him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Final question. Final question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, Catholic missionary. 
Exactly so. No, uh, it means that you are you have access to the sacramental system, and so for here, and uh, if you if you die in grace without committing mortal sin, you would spend less time in hell. If you are dying outside of the sacrament, you may end up ultimately in heaven. Having to be purified for longer time. Thank you very much.